tuning in to our Neighborhood Church podcast. Join us on Sunday at any of our locations. To learn more about our church, visit neighborhoodchurch.com or download our church app. Well, good morning, Neighborhood Church. It's, uh, it's good to see so many people here in person. Uh, thank you for joining us online as well. You know, it's been a while. I was, uh, I was thinking this week, it's been over a year since I've had the privilege of being up here and communing with you in this way. And I've missed you guys. I have. I love you, man. No, seriously, I, I, I have a fresh appreciation for the words of King David in Psalms 122 when he said, I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. I see those words in, a, in an entirely, entirely different light today. I do. And, uh, and quite a year it's been. Huh? A, lot, a lot going on. Critical theory, new kinds of victimologies, social distancing. You know, the enemy is always trying to divide us somehow. That's why now more than ever, we need to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said, we preach Christ and him crucified. And there should be a singularity to our focus because that's the good news. The gospel of Christ is not about your health or your race or your wealth or what group you belong to or whether you wear a mask. There is room at the cross for everyone, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Amen? Amen. These are challenging times, no question. You know, uh, there's enough going on out there to, to make people feel a little unsettled. You know, I've, I've heard people say, I, I've never seen it this bad. I mean, this is just unprecedented. Is it? I mean, maybe on our little 80-year window of time, but not on God's calendar. Who's on the throne? Still, the ancient of days. The one whom it says in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Folks, there is nothing new under the sun. So says Ecclesiastes 1, 9. And what we're witnessing, it's the same old recycled rebellion It just has different labels in this culture. Jesus made it pretty clear when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world doesn't behave. But the good news is we're on the winning team. I've read the book. I know how it ends. In the meantime, you know, in this world, you will have trouble, but fear not, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. We are here this morning to worship the living God, and not a sparrow falls to the ground that he doesn't notice. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We're in uh, Matthew chapter 18 this morning. So while you're uh, turning the pages or scrolling, um, a little brag time, okay? That is, um, there they are. 
That is uh, Kyla Grace Malloy, Camille Drew Ellis, and uh, I better get this right, Olivia Tatum Vreeland. My oldest daughter married a Dutchman. Um, numbers 9, 10, and 11 on our grandchild ledger, and all three girls, which is, which is awesome because of the first eight, we had seven boys. So the girls are catching up a little bit, which makes my wife very happy. We are, we are indeed blessed. But I got to tell you, it's not easy keeping up with the McKays over here. Okay, they set a pretty high bar. So, you know, I just keep telling my kids, you got to keep at it. You know, keep doing God's work. And, and that's it right there. You know, we all had to stay home this past year, so they had nothing else to do, I guess. I don't know. We are continuing this morning in our series, Encounters with Jesus. Let's all have one with him this morning, shall we? He's here. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. That's exactly what it says in the verse right before our passage this morning in chapter 18 of the book of Matthew. Will you pray with me? Lord, we bow our hearts before the great forgiver this morning, the one who loved so much he did not spare his only son. Lord, speak to us this morning, please. We want to hear from you through your word. Illuminate our minds, encourage our hearts, because you alone have the words of truth. Speak to us, Lord, for your glory and our blessing. In the name of Jesus, amen. We're looking this morning at the idea of finding the freedom of forgiveness. Forgiveness, uh, a timely subject, I think, because when you look around at the culture today, there isn't a whole lot of that going around, it seems. You know, these days, if uh, you say the wrong thing or, or maybe even think the wrong thing, you can get canceled pretty quickly ostracized, shunned, labeled narrow-minded. You can lose your job even, right? We've seen that happen. It seems we're getting less and less forgiving every day. There is a real spirit of unforgiveness circulating through our culture, a real spirit of bitterness that is not from the Lord. The Bible talks a lot about the importance of being forgiving. It's a high virtue. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is, it is, it is his glory to overlook a transgression. You want to see a man at his best? It's when he has a forgiving heart. Forgiveness is the key to unity. Forgiveness is the key to love. It is the key to healthy, meaningful relationship. It is what tears down the barriers that seek to divide us and keep us apart. For most of our 43 years together, my wife and I had a piece of calligraphy on the wall in our bedroom. It says, a successful marriage is the union between two great forgivers. 
The other day, our, uh, our oldest daughter commented on that picture. And she said, you know, Mom and Dad, I, I used to see that all the time growing up, and I never understood it. I thought, why do you have to be forgiving each other all the time? I mean, what are you doing? Living life, basically. She's married now with kids. She said, I totally get it. I totally get it. What does the Lord have to say about all of this? Matthew chapter 18. The 18th chapter of Matthew begins with the disciples coming to Jesus with this question. Lord, how do you get to be great in the kingdom of God? That's a good question, right? God has put that desire in our hearts. We, we want to be great. And Jesus responds by calling a child out of the crowd, probably someone he knew, most likely a child of one of the disciples or, or maybe one of his followers. And he, he puts this little child in the middle of this circle of adults. And he says, truly, I tell you this, unless you be converted, unless you change and become like a child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus saying? That we need to be naive and immature? Of course not. Indeed, it is the goal of the Lord that we not be babes. Ephesians 4.14, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and, and carried away by every wind of doctrine. 1 Corinthians 14.20, brothers, stop acting like children. Be mature in your thinking. The Lord wants us to grow up. So in what aspect then do we need to be like children? Jesus tells them in verse 4, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The humility of a child. You see, I don't think this little kid was standing in the middle of these group of adults with his arms folded looking around like, mm, mm-hmm. No, I think he probably, you know, shuffled in with his hands together, looking up at the Lord like, what do you want me to do now? Waiting for his next instruction. And I think Jesus said, you see that? That's what you need to be like. Humble, teachable, get rid of your pride. Humility. That's the trait of children. They don't think they know everything yet. At least until they get to be teenagers. They trust their moms and dads to do what's best for them. And they're eager to learn. Dad, show me. Teach me. I want to be like you. We need to become like children in regards to our relationship with God as we trust him implicitly. And I suggest to you that is exactly the kind of faith we need to be a true forgiver. From the heart. Jesus goes on to talk about the importance of relationships and, and how if you are offended by someone, you need to go to them privately, not in anger, and set things right for the sake of unity. And hearing all this, in verse 21, Peter steps up, and you know, Peter's always the first one to open his mouth, right? You know, always charging ahead. But, but I like that about him because he asks questions, so we get answers. Peter came and said to him, Lord... How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? 
Peter is working off tradition here because the rabbis said you had to forgive three times, but on the fourth, that was a bridge too far. They extrapolated this tradition from the first two chapters of the book of Amos, where the Lord is pronouncing judgment on Damascus and Syria and Edom and Moab and Gaza. And each time the Lord says, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke my punishment. So the rabbis taught, you need to forgive your brother three times, but, but not on the fourth. And Peter has been with the Lord a, a couple of years now. He knows Jesus' bucks tradition. He goes farther. He's compassionate and forgiving. So he figures, I'll double it, plus one. No doubt thinking, you know, he's going to get a pat on the back of some kind. What's Jesus' response? Verse 22. I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And here we have the challenge of forgiveness. It's the first point in your outline. Jesus is stretching his disciples to go beyond their comfort zone, what they're used to. You know, I've heard this passage preached on many times, and invariably the pastor will say something like, well, you know, Jesus picked this big number because he's making the point that, that forgiveness is just ongoing, that you should just keep on forgiving. And frankly, I'll be honest, I, I was never satisfied with that explanation because I thought, you know, if that was the point, why didn't Jesus just say that? Why didn't he say, just keep on forgiving? Or as many times as they ask, to infinity and beyond, right? Jesus could have picked any number, but he didn't. He said 70 times 7. I believe what it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So when you come to something like this in the scripture that has you scratching your head thinking, you know, why is that there? What, why that detail? I think you should ask yourself this question. Why did the Holy Spirit want me to know? Why that detail? I finally had a pastor break it down for me, a Jewish believer, a guy named Long, Lon Solomon, since retired. And I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is doing something very deliberate here. I think Jesus is making a point that his disciples understood perfectly. They were Jewish men. They understood Jewish history. They grew up learning about it. They knew all about the Babylonian captivity. We had the story of Daniel in the lion's den just a few weeks ago that comes from that very period of time. Do you know why the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years? Because in Leviticus 24, verses 4 and 5, the Lord gave the nation of Israel a command that they were to farm the land for six years. But every seventh year, they were not to plant. The fields were to lie fallow. It says the land shall enjoy a sabbatical year. Now, there were sound agricultural reasons for that, but for 490 years, the nation of Israel had failed to keep that command. And the Lord said, that's 70 sabbatical years overdue. And that's exactly what it says at the end of 2 Chronicles chapter 26, 36, I'm sorry. 
Verse 20, and those who had escaped from the sword, he, that's Nebuchadnezzar, carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Why? To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. 70 times seven. I think that is exactly what Jesus is referencing here. He's telling his disciples, as he did many other times in the, in the Gospels, don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. You be like your Father in heaven. When it comes to forgiving, you are to be gracious and long-suffering, just like your heavenly Father. I agree Jesus is not setting a limit on forgiveness here. There is no specific line. Jesus uses a specific number to make a point. But the point is not that you only forgive 490 times. You know, okay, 490, 89, 490, that's it, no more. We are to be like our heavenly Father who does not keep an account. That's what it says in Psalms 130. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. Hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You know what Jeremiah said to the people right after he told them they were going away for 70 years? Jeremiah 29, we quote it all the time. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this land. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That's the challenge for us, to be like our heavenly father. You bear his image. I'm glad there are no limits on forgiveness because I have to ask for it every time I preach because I never get the outline or the PowerPoint in on time. And I know that must frustrate Victor to no end, but he is gracious and long-suffering with me, demonstrating a spirit of forgiveness. Right, Victor? Thank you. Hey. Forgiveness is part of the character of God. Jesus is going to give them an object lesson on this in just a few chapters. When he's dying on the cross and people are spitting at him. They've shoved a crown of thorns into his brow. They've hammered nails through his limbs. And he's hanging there with nothing but flies and blood as a cloak before the whole watching world. And he looks down at them and says, Father, what? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness is hard sometimes. Really hard. When you've been wronged unfairly, taken advantage of, abused even by someone you trusted. I don't pretend to know what you're dealing with, what hurts you have suffered. Whatever it is, I, I know it's real. 
Sometimes forgiveness is one of the hardest parts about living and loving like Jesus. It takes faith to be a forgiver. The faith of forgiveness, that's the second point in your outline. It takes faith to let it go. It does. It doesn't mean there are not consequences. It doesn't mean we let someone take advantage of us again and again. But as an attitude of your heart, you let go. You don't hold a grudge. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Aside from the Lord Jesus, I think one of the greatest examples of this principle in Scripture comes from the life of Joseph. Joseph was one of 12 sons born to his father Jacob, but his father loved him more than the others. He gave him a special gift. We uh, call it an ornamental tunic or something like that, we think. But whatever it was, as a parent, you know, you give something to one child, you don't give to the others, it's causing problems. And it did. His brothers resented him. And to make matters worse, Joseph had some dreams as a young man. Remember that? He dreamed about his brother's sheaves and stars bowing down before him. And he, and he told his brothers about these dreams, and they hated him all the more. Genesis 37.4 says his brothers could not even speak to him in peace. Talk about some family dysfunction. And one day Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers while they're tending their flocks on the hills, and they see him coming in the distance, and they say, here he comes, the dreamer of dreams. Let's kill him. This is our chance. But the eldest, Reuben, says, no, 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 don't kill him. So his brother Judah says, let's sell him. And that's what they do. To a caravan of wandering Ishmaelites on their way down to Egypt. And at the age of 17, Joseph is sold into slavery by his own brothers. Torn from his family, from his home, from everything he knew and loved. He ends up as a servant in the house of Potiphar the captain of Pharaoh's guard, but he gets thrown in prison for 13 years after being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife when he refuses to sleep with her. And then one day, the Pharaoh's chief butler and chief baker get thrown into that very same prison, and they both have dreams about the future that, that Joseph interprets for them. And he tells the baker, hey, I, I got bad news for you. Pharaoh's going to have you executed. But the chief butler, he says, you're going to be restored to your position. And when you are, remember me. I'm an innocent man. I didn't do anything. The scripture says the butler forgot all about Joseph until one day Pharaoh had some dreams. Remember those dreams? He dreamed about seven fat cows being eaten by seven lean and sickly cows and seven healthy sheaves of grain being devoured by seven thin and, and withered sheaves of grain. And nobody can, can explain the meaning of the dream to Pharaoh until the butler says, oh, 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 I know a guy. They called for Joseph. Genesis 41, 14 says Joseph shaved. That's another one of those interesting little factoids, by the way, because as far as we can determine, Egypt was the only major culture in that time in which men shaved. So the spirit adds that little detail for us, just in case you were wondering. And Joseph hears Pharaoh's dreams, and he says, Pharaoh, the Lord is telling you what he's about to do. 
There's going to be seven years of great abundance followed by seven years of severe famine. And if you were smart, you'd appoint somebody to store up grain during the years of plenty so you have enough when the famine hits. And Pharaoh says, well, how about you? And at the age of 30, Joseph goes from being a slave and a prisoner to one of the most powerful men in the known world, second only to Pharaoh. And in a few years, when the famine hits, guess who comes down to Egypt looking for food? Yeah, his brothers. They don't recognize him because they haven't seen him for like 25 years. And Joseph doesn't reveal himself to them until finally he can't take it anymore. And he says, it's me. It's Joseph, your brothers. Your brother. And, and, and they, they are stunned, frankly. And right away they're thinking, oh man, we are in trouble. He's going to get us now. But what does Joseph say? Genesis 45. Joseph said to his brothers, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Now therefore, it is not you who sent me here, but God. You know, I bet there were some pretty long, dark nights during those 13 years in prison. You know, I wonder if Joseph thought, Lord, did it, did it, did it really have to take 13 years? I mean, couldn't you have gotten this done like in one or two? I wonder if he had, though. I know I would. What amazing childlike faith to be able to trust God to that degree. Joseph says, you know what? I'm going to let it go. No anger, no bitterness at having his youth snatched away from him. I'm going to trust God. God wants us to experience the blessings of forgiveness. That's the third point. Because it has all been paid for on the cross. He wants you to experience the blessing of being forgiven, of being able to let it go, because he knows that the real blessing of forgiveness is not so much for the offender. The real blessing of forgiveness is for the one who has been offended when we are able to let go of the hurt and the pain. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 9 says, To sum up, let all be harmonious sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. There's that word again. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. When we don't forgive... We cannot experience the full joy of our own salvation. We can't. Jesus spends the rest of Matthew chapter 18 telling his disciples a parable. He often taught that way with stories. It's a parable about a king. It's, it's pretty long, so I don't have time to go over it word for word, but it's a parable about a king who has a servant that owes him an enormous debt. 
Verse 24 says it was 10,000 talents. Probably billions in today's currency. That's an astronomical sum. Just, just by way of comparison, the total revenue connected, uh, collected by the Roman government during this period of time in all of Judea, in all of Samaria, in all of Edom and Moab was about 600 talents. This guy owes 10,000. Herod's temple, which stood in Jerusalem at that time, was overlaid with gold. And that took 3,000 talents. So this is an astronomical debt. It's unpayable. And when this servant falls on his face and begs for mercy and asks for more time to pay, the king knows he can't possibly pay this, even if he had a hundred lifetimes. But he is moved with compassion, in verse 27, and forgives him the debt, all of it. He doesn't say, okay, we're going to put you on a payment plan, which is what we tend to do, frankly, when someone has offended us, right? Okay, you can, you can pay me back a little bit every day until I decide that's enough, right? The king forgives the entire debt. And then this servant goes out and finds a man who owed him chump change by comparison, a hundred denarii. And he grabs him by the throat and says, pay it. And when this man does exactly the same thing, falls on his face and begs for mercy and asks for time to pay, he has him thrown in prison. We don't have debtors' prisons in this country anymore. That's a good thing. There used to be. In the ancient world, one of the ways you became a slave was if you couldn't pay your debts. You became the payment. It had nothing to do with your ethnicity or your race. It had everything to do with what you owed. And word gets back to the king, and he is none too pleased. He summons the sermon in, and in verse 32 says, You wicked, ungrateful servant, I forgave you such a debt. And you can't let go of a tiny offense? Should you not also have mercy on your fellow servant, even as I had mercy on you? And he says, throw him in jail until he pays every last dime. And Jesus closes the parable with this statement in verse 35. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Is that not the scariest thing you've heard so far today? Jesus says essentially the same thing in Mark eleven twenty-five. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your transgressions. If we do not forgive from the heart, if we hold grudges, if we hang on to bitterness and resentment and let that poison slowly eat us away inside, not only do we not experience the blessings of forgiveness, but we place ourselves under the discipline and chastening of the Lord. God commands us to forgive. It is part of his nature, an image that we bear and are to reflect to the world around us. God is serious 
about this people. Back to the story of Joseph. A few years later, Joseph's father, Jacob, dies. And his brothers start freaking out because they're thinking, you know, he just went easy on us because dad was around. Now he's really going to get revenge. So they go to him in Genesis chapter 50 and they say, hey, 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 dad said don't hurt us. And what is Joseph's response? Again, verses 19 through 21 of Genesis chapter 50. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them, expressing that spirit of forgiveness again. You know, it's interesting that Joseph's brothers found it hard to accept, hard to believe that that Joseph could really forgive them, that it was genuine. I think that's because sometimes for us, the hardest person to forgive is yourself. You know what you've done. You want to you loathe yourself for it. I think we all carry around this, this little bag of shame sometimes. You know, we throw it over our shoulders and we lug it around. Unworthy. Unworthy. You know when we do that? We deny the reality of the cross. Because it's paid for in blood, every bit of it. So if you've gone astray and you're carrying around that guilt, you can set it down. You can. It's okay. God is waiting for you with open arms, running to you, really, like the story we heard from Mike Last week, the Father wants you back. You pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this challenge this morning. We ask that you encourage our faith. And Lord, we we seek to enjoy the blessings of forgiveness. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Father, that we should take this passage to heart, that we should be forgivers as you are the great forgiver. Let us follow your example in our relationships, Lord, with our friends, our colleagues, our community, and those that we love and care for. In your name we pray, amen.